Who all, I think everybody here was here for the movie last week, right? Is anybody that missed it? Oh, you guys missed it. So we did a movie called The Coming Convergence where it talked about everything in Revelation and how it all comes together to a point. And it brought up some things that we will be addressing, like the feasts that the Jewish people were commanded to follow and to do. They actually apply directly to the book of Revelation themselves. But tonight we're going to chapter 10. That's where we were. We left off on chapter 9. We left off with the, the, the blowing of the sixth trumpet. They haven't blown the seventh trumpet yet. And if you notice, it's kind of a pattern in Revelation. When he opened the seals, they opened the first six. And then there was a big break. We went to do some other things. And then they opened the seventh seal. Um, one thing I hope you got from the movie that I've been preaching the whole time we've been in this is the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls. Even though they're separate in Revelation, they happen at exactly the same time. So there's been this, people have read Revelation and they've had the idea that these are three separate events, like three separate judgments, but they're not. They are, the way they're written is when, for example, when the seals are open, this begins everything. It begins the trumpets, it begins the bowls. So everything happens at once. So keep that in mind when we get to the bowls, which will be later on here. Um, but this chapter 10 is a great chapter. Like I said earlier, it's going to explain some things to us. One thing it's going to tell us is, since the church, since we're raptured, the biggest question I hear people all the time is, well, since the church is going to be raptured, we're not going to be here, why do I care what's all in the book of Revelation? Well, chapter 10 is going to answer that for us directly, why we need to care about it and why we're given it. But uh, before we get started, I'm going to read it, and then we're going to go back and break it down, and then we're going to go into Ezekiel. But chapter 10 begins like this. And I saw another mighty angel come down from heaven, clothed with a cloud, and a rainbow was upon his head, and his face was as it were the sun, and his feet as pillars of fire. Have we ever heard this description before? Anybody on a scripture? This has been used before. Not only in Revelation, but somewhere else it was used in the Old Testament, which we'll see. I want to break a few words down in this verse because it's important. Where it says, and I saw another mighty angel, the word another is a loss, and that is the... The Greek word there is indicating this is some this is different from what he was previously talking about, the angels he saw blowing the trumpets. So this angel was a different angel, so it's a different vision. So it's not part of that vision. And then it says, clothed with a cloud. The word clothed there is pirabalo, which means to be thrown all around. In other words, to be covered all around, head to toe, completely covered in. And that's an indication of veiled glory. How many times has we read in Scripture about a cloud veiling God so he was so they could not be seen? Ezekiel had the vision um, when he was when they were in the temple in his dream in the temple. And when he went into the temple, it says the train and smoke filled the room because it was veiling the glory of God um, on the mountain when Moses went up the mountain. Clouds. Veiled the glory of God. Here, that's what it's describing. When it says clothed with the cloud, that means it's it's covered him all around. It's veiling veiling his glory. Um, and it continues. A rainbow was upon his head. We had talked about this way back in Revelations. I don't know if you guys remember this, but when it speaks about a rainbow above his head, this is a it's a it's where he's mindful of the covenant is what it means. So when he talks, remember it says we had the rainbow that surrounded the throne. It is so, so the throne was surrounded in God's promise. Here is the same example of that, is that it, he's, God is always mindful of his covenant. Sometimes I think we doubt that. But here it's telling us that everything that God does, and what's getting ready to happen, even though that seventh trumpet's going to be blowing soon, the first thing in front of him is he's mindful of his covenant. Then it goes on. As it were the sun, we've talked about this before in Revelations, this speaks of glory and majesty. And then feet as pillars of, pillars of fire. We've also talked about this because this is a description we heard earlier. And this stands for steady, pure, uh, righteous judgment. Uh, supreme authority is what it means there. So I wanted to get that description out of the first one because a lot of people, there's been a lot of talk whether is this, is this describing Christ or is this describing another angel like, you know, the angel Michael or who is it describing? Well, if you go through the words in the description, it can't be describing anybody else other than Christ himself. Because I don't see it describing an angel, a regular angel, with these words. Because 
A regular angel wouldn't always be mindful of the covenant. It wouldn't always describe them as veiling their glory because angels have appeared to people in Scripture many times and they weren't veiled. Angels have always appeared. They appeared to Mary. While they, you know, they're fearful and we tremble at them, they weren't veiled. The only, per the only person that's ever been veiled in Scripture is God himself because we can't look upon his glory. So the second verse says, And in his hand, and he had in his hand a little book open. And he set his right foot upon the sea and his left foot upon the earth. Little book. The word actually means in Greek, small scroll. So I want you to give you, the image I want you to have in your mind is, it's like, think of a scroll, but microsize it, like a little scroll. It's describing something, the actual word means insignificant. And that's, this is going to play into what we're describing here. He sat here on this one. It says that he set his feet. He set his feet upon, this speaks of authority in the Greek. It's used in a military way to mean that one has put their foot down as authority. as like, this is a line. This is mine. I own this. Nobody crossed. If you were a military soldier and you were told to command it, to guard a post, you would set your feet at that post and you would stay there because it was your post. Um, that's the kind of idea he's giving here. By the sitting of his right foot upon the sea and his left foot on the earth, that speaks again of complete authority over the earth. Um, the act here shows that all creation belongs to the Lord. So, remember, we've seen the six trumpets, and now it's taking a break from that before the seventh, and we're also we're getting another vision here of Christ as his authority over the earth. And verse 3 says, And cried with a loud voice, as when a lion roareth. And when he had cried, seven thunders uttered their voices. Now, the reference here of when a lion and roareth are referring to the lion of the tribe of Judah. But I found it interesting, where else in, what else in Scripture says that somebody goes around like a roaring lion, right? Satan, right? Well, here, in this verse, in Revelation, they're describing Christ himself now as a lion that roareth. Because he is now here with full authority as the lion of the tribe of Judah. This is the... This is the Christ that the Jewish people were looking for when he came the first time. That he was supposed to return as the lion of the tribe of Judah, as with all authority, with supreme power, to overthrow. And this is what's being described now. Because in the second coming of Christ, when he comes back the second time, not the rapture, when he returns to earth, he will come in that capacity as the lion of the tribe of Judah. He won't come as a suffering servant this time. He's going to come as, a, as the leader and controller of the universe. Um, seven thunders is referring to the seven seals, the seven trumpets, and the seven bowls. And then seven, seven solemn and terrible ways of discovering the mind of God. So we're shown seven seals, seven trumpets, and seven bowls. And what I found interesting about what they're going to show us is, and that's why I wrote this, seven solemn and terrible ways of discovering the mind of God. Because in Revelation, it's, you're revealing the mind of God. And a lot of people read this and they find it terrifying and scary and wondering why a God of love would do this. And they, they, they don't understand why. And that's what we're going to look at. So we're going to go through these quickly and there's a lot I have to talk about. 10-4. And when the seven thunders had uttered their voices, I was about to write and I heard a voice from heaven saying unto me, seal up the things which the seven thunders uttered and write them not. I love that. John understood here in the vision what they were saying, what these seven thunders were saying, meaning he had a complete understanding at that point of the purpose, divine purpose of God right at that point. He had a complete understanding of it. But he was told to seal it up, not to write it, not to let it be revealed. Why? As the time had not yet come to be revealed. The time will come when God will reveal his perfect knowledge to us. It says in Scripture that that will come. But at this time, it is not, the time has not yet come for it to be revealed. The entire passage of this verse shows that God is in control of all things, and he dispenses his knowledge in perfect divine time. Remember way back in the very beginning, before we started Revelations, we talked about the dispensation of the seven dispensations of knowledge. God dispensates knowledge at different times to forward his purpose 
And what I mean by that is you would all agree Adam and Eve had no knowledge of the church, right? Uh, Adam and Eve had no knowledge that there was going to be law. So what we're talking about is at different points in time, God dispensed different knowledge to forward his will and his purposes. So here what we're saying is this shows that God does dis dispense knowledge at the perfect time to forward his will. He's not yet ready to let what the seven thunders have said be written down. Now, here's where we get pretty good in 10.5. And the angel which I saw stood upon the sea and upon the earth, lifted up his hands to heaven. The verse before this and this verse here reminds me of the original covenant that God made. How many remember, how many read in a Genesis 15, the oath that God made. Anybody remember how it happened? How did it happen? He split the animals too. Abraham split the sleep, and God himself So man could, had nothing to do with it then, right? Because once man put him to sleep, God walked through it, which means God made the promise on who? On his on his self. That's what this reminds me of. And the angel, which we've already determined most likely is Christ, which I saw stood upon the sea and upon the earth lifted up his hand to heaven. So what we're getting ready, God, here again, we're seeing God making a promise and with himself, because man cannot fulfill the promise. And I actually put Genesis 15 in here, because it, this brings to mind me the original covenant. I love this because I'm seeing this in Revelation, it's reminding me of the very first original covenant. In Genesis it says this, and he took unto him all these and divided them in the midst and laid each piece one against another, but the birds divided he not. And when the fowls came down upon the carcass, Abram drove them away. And when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and lo, and a horror of great darkness fell upon him. And he said unto Abram, Know of a surety that thy seed shall be a stranger in the land that is not theirs, and shall serve them, and they shall afflict them for four hundred years. And also the nation whom they shall serve will I judge, and afterwards shall they come out with great substance. And thou, shalt go, and thou shalt go to thy fathers in peace. Thou shalt be buried in a good old age. But in the fourth generation they shall come and hither again. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. And it came to pass that when the sun went down and it was dark, behold, a smoking furnace and a burning lamp that passed between the two pieces. In the same day the Lord made covenant with Abram, saying, Unto thy seed have I given this land from the river of Egypt unto the great river and the river Euphrates. So the original covenant that was made, God had to seal that covenant with himself. Because the reason is, if he would have sealed that covenant with man, man would have broken his end of the deal. And then the covenant could not stand. So that's why, and I don't know if you guys knew that, but back in the Old Testament, when anybody, if me and you wanted to make a covenant in the Old Testament, we'd go out in the wilderness, we'd grab ourselves an animal, we would gut it, cut it in half, and we'd lay it on both sides of the walkway, and then together we would walk through the split animal signifying resealing our covenant with blood. Um, so that's what happened. And that's what reminds me here in Revelation 10, because it's talking about, look at the next verse, it tells you the covenant. And it says, And he sware by him that liveth forever and ever, who created heaven, and the things that are therein, and the earth, and the things that are therein of, and the sea, and the things which are therein, that there should be time no longer. This is declaring that this is it. There's going to be time no longer. People have taken that to mean though, that, that that right there is describing the end of the day, end of earth. That, that is done. That's not what it's describing. What it means here when it says there should be time no longer, that at this point, when this point happens, all God's plan is going to be revealed. Now, it's going to be revealed in some ways because it says, but in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he shall begin to sound, the mystery of God should be finished. And he hath declared to his servants the prophets. Mystery is the truth that God, that God had given to his prophets back in the Old Testament days. I mean, he prophesied about many things. And the mystery of God also was the church. That was revealed. The church is always called a mystery in Scripture because it was a mystery to them. What we mean by that is Nobody had ever prophesied about a church because it was a mystery. God kept that mystery to himself. Here's another thing. It's describing 
when the seventh when, when the seventh trumpet or seventh bowl or seventh seal when they have, when they have completed what is a mystery to us right now will be fully revealed to them. So it's it's kind of a, it's I put it this way: mystery is a truth that God concluded, concealed, but has revealed through Christ and His apostles. Here, the mystery being spoken of is the final consummation of all things as God destroys sinners and establishes his righteous kingdom on earth. Um, here it says, as he declared, the mystery, though fully not revealed, was declared actually to God's prophet Amos. And I put a reference in there for you if you ever want to read it. It's in chapter 3 of Amos. But he declared this same thing. And we're going to see when we go to Ezekiel, he also gave this to Ezekiel. This exact, what we're seeing right now in Revelation, Ezekiel knew thousands of years before this. And the voice which I heard from heaven spoke again unto me and said, Go, and this is, the, this is the important part of chapter 10, the rest of this. Go and take the little book which is in, open in the hand of the angel, which standeth upon the sea and upon the earth. And I went unto the angel and said unto him, Give me the little book. And he said unto me, Take it and eat it up, and it shall make thy belly bitter, but it shall be in thy mouth sweet as honey. Take it and eat it. There are two things here that this is describing. The first one is talking about John. John's illustrating a physical reaction, which is how every believer should react to the final judgment that's coming upon the earth. One, it should be sweet to our mouth, our lips. Why? Because that's our victory. But then, once we digest this and get it and we digest revelation, it should become bitter in our belly because we know and we our hearts are sick because we and our stomach is sick because we know what's going to be fall upon those who have not had Christ. So that's what it's describing here. Take and eat means to means to take the word of God and to consume it into your body. And when you do that, it's sweet to us because it's our victory, but it's also sickening to us because we know the outcome for those who don't have Christ. Um, Sweet anticipation of God's glory and victory, and at the same time, the bitterness of seeing God's wrath poured out on those who rejected God's Son. That's what we should, that's, how, that's our natural response. That's how we should respond to the gospel. It should be sweet to our mouth. We should, it's our, this book is our victory book, right? It, it's our victory, but it should be a twofold, like a double-edged sword. It should be sweet to us, but it should also make us sick because every time we see someone who don't have Christ, we know the outcome of that. And it, it makes us sick to our stomach to think that they don't. And it says, and he said unto me, in the next verse, Thou must prophesy again before many people and nations and tongues and kings. This verse tells us why we need to know what's going on in the book of Revelation. We need to understand it. We need to read it. We need to do as John said. We need to eat it and digest it. Because our mission is what was told here. We are to tell this to people. They, we are to let them to be, understand. When it says peoples, nations, tongues, and kings, that's describing a whole different level. People and kings. So it's saying we need to tell everybody from the poorest to the highest. They need to know this. Nations and tongues means we need to be speaking to every creature on the earth. Every human being on the earth needs to be told this information. They need to understand. Why do you think some of the most biggest selling books in Christian is about the book of Revelation? Anybody that writes a book on Revelation, somebody's buying it. You ever notice that? They'll write a book on anything. Is this the last days? Are we in and if, it, if they say that book is written from the book of Revelation, people buy it up. Right. Because they want to know. The problem is, if we as Christians have not eaten and digested the word like, like God instructed them to, we can't tell them this. So the big part is, that's why I think it's so important to teach Revelation, because we, if we have a good understanding, and we have that sweetness on our lips and the bitterness in our belly, every time we meet someone who doesn't know Christ, it just, it gives us more passion and more, more drive and more strength to go to them and explain to them what's going on and what the outcome is for them. We're, a lot of times we're afraid to tell people their outcome. We are. 
We'll tell them, well, you know, we'll talk about Christ to them, but, you know, it's, we won't tell them what happens when they don't have Christ. We, and this is what this is talking about. We're going to talk a lot about this. The apostle is, is made to know that this is the book of prophecy, which he has now taken in and was given to him merely. This book is not given to us merely to gratify our own curiosity. Okay? Or to affect us with pleasure or pain. So this book wasn't given for us, is what it's saying. Not for us to just consume for ourselves so we can, you know, fulfill our own curiosity. That's what's going on. This book was, is to be communicated to the world. Um, here is a, prophet, a prophetical commission, and he is ordered to prepare for an embassy. So he's ordering us to prepare for an embassy. To convey these declarations of the mind and will of God to the world. Now, you have to be careful doing that because... Again, if you don't understand it, you can't declare it to the world. So again, we should, we should be eating the Word of God. Remember, this is the most important part. So I want to talk about that little book again. We're going to spend some time on that before I go back to Ezekiel. I want to talk about the descriptions of that little book we just talked about. The first thing it says is it's a book, right? It said it's a little book. Um, the Bible is not revelation itself in this sense. It's a record of the revelation. You understand what I mean by that? Speaking of the revelation, the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation by itself is not the revelation, but a re recording of that revelation. So what I mean by that is, if I write a book, and it's whatever you want to say, I write a crime in this mystery novel, right? Is that the actual crime I wrote about, or is that just me writing a story? Just writing a story, right? This is saying, in this, by describing it as a book, is saying, this is, the book itself isn't the revelation, but the revelation is what it contains. So it is, everything that was written is true, if you want to put it in our language. That's what it's saying. Also, it says by that, um, many people have argued a lot about the idea of the book of Revelation. Um, some have argued that it should be it should be taught. Some have argued that it should only be for personal teaching, personal revelation. Some have argued that some of us will never understand the book of Revelation. I disagree with all of those because God said he gave us all scripture, right? For inspiration, for instruction, for teaching, for guiding. We were given all scripture. And I also find it, I find that I disagree with those statements because God said that it's not, a, God is not a God of chaos or complication or confusion. So when, I think it's us that have confused the book of Revelation by trying to add our own visualizations to it and add our own ideas to what it says instead of doing what it is, read it because it's a book. Read it because it's a book. That's what that means. It's a little book. Um, the word little there makes it seem like it's significant, like it's, like it's not significant. It's a little book. Um, I like to say this in this way, in today's time in society, of all the things that we hold important, right? Doesn't this book to the world seem very insignificant? Right? It's a little book. Just a little book of Revelation. With everything going on today and all the stuff that we can go after, we see this book as, not Christians, but a lot of people see this book as insignificant. It's just a little book. But, it's a description of the wrath that God's going to pour on those who don't have him. So, I say this. We may be grateful that in this little and not huge library, which it would need a lifetime to know of, but one small volume can be read and reread and carried everywhere as we will. He revealed everything to us in this little book instead of some massive amount of prophecies and just huge writing that we could never unfold. Um, this book, the prophecy of this book is completely different than the prophecies of the Old Testament. If you, ever, if you read the Old Testament prophecies, they were very hard sometimes to connect to what they meant. You know what I mean? If you've ever read Old Testament prophecy, it's sometimes you read it and it's like, it's, it's almost like a, a, a 
maze that you've got to filter through to figure out where he's talking or where it's going because prophecy was given and sometimes it was given in two parts. Sometimes it was for now. Sometimes it was for future. and Sometimes it was even beyond that. And, but the book of Revelation isn't like that. The book of Revelation is very straightforward, very small written. It gives us everything in detail without having to go through a maze to point to where it's talking about. We know where it's talking about. It's talking about the second coming of Christ. We don't have to guess what it's talking about. As with all the prophecies, we did. And there was probably, you know, the Old Testament, I don't know what that is, it's probably crazy. The Old Testament is packed full of prophecy. But even today, this is what I mean, even today, a lot of Old Testament prophecy still has not been yet figured out. There are still people today who read Old Testament prophecy and they're still finding stuff out. Not so with the book of Revelation. You can read the book of Revelation, and while you might not understand it sometimes, you, can, you don't have to doubt what it's talking about or what it's referring to. So I love that it says it's a book. It says it seems to be insignificant because it's little. Also, in the description, it said it's an open book. So John saw this as an open in the hand of the angel. There have been, and there are those who would have the word of God, if not entirely, yet to a large extent, not affirm that this book is for common people. I said that as easy as I could without calling out any certain things. There are many, many places that believe that this book is not for the common people. It's not designed for us to read it. Um, for centuries, they've kept the book closed. Um, there are still out there today. They keep the book closed. And it's looked upon now, even in our world today, this book is looked upon now with more dislike than it ever has been. If they could right now, they would stop us. They would totally want to close this book. Yeah, but we know why. Yes, we know why. But what I love about John's description is it says it's an open book, which means it's, it's open for everyone to read. That goes against any idea that only the elite can read this book. That means... Even the most common, new Christian can read this book. I've, I've seen people told that as when they come to Christ, they should read this book for a few years until they get more mature. I don't believe that. I believe we should be reading it as part of our daily reading. Also, I want to say this. Um, because God said that this book is to be opened, it's also not talking about just to our eyes. It's also talking about to our mind in this, verse, in this verse. When it talks about the book being open in the angel's hand. Notice the angel didn't fight. When he came up to get the book, did the angel say, wait a minute, I've got to make sure you're, you know, you're ready for this. He didn't say, are you ready, John, to take this book? It was already open in the hand of the angel, and John just took it. So that's an indication that this book is open for all of us, and that we should be the book is ours, and it should not only apply to our eyes, but our mind. That goes back to what Paul said about renewing our minds. Also about this little book, this also indicates to us God's word to man by this little book. Notice it says, The voice which I heard from heaven spoke unto me and said, Go and take the little book. That's an indication that the gospel is brought to man, but it comes from heaven. Is that not what we say about our Bible? Is it not divinely inspired by the Holy Spirit? So the gospel is brought to man from heaven. And the next word that it says, and he said, take it and eat it up. The gospel is to be appropriated by men. In other words, the gospel is not merely to enlighten our minds, but it's to stimulate inquiry, it's to excite our emotions, it's to be appropriated as food, it's to be satisfy hunger and to investigate further the desires of the soul. All of this comes from that definition. Also, it shall make thy belly bitter, but it shall be in thy mouth sweet as honey. The gospel has a twofold effect on us. It has a twofold effect on us, like we were talking about earlier. It's both bitter and sweet. And it's, it's sweet in the disclosures of the infinite love of God. But its conviction of sin and its reproofs are, are bitterness in our belly. And then also, 
And he said unto me, Thou must prophesy again before many people, nations, tongues, and kings. The gospel appropriated or eaten or taken in by man is what approves us or qualifies us for the mission that Christ called us. What we mean by that is, he's told here, prophesying or indoctrinating men with divine ideas is the grand mission of all of us. Um, this mission can only be realized after the teacher himself, and when I say teacher, that means all of us, as the teacher himself has appropriated or fed on this word. And, uh, now, it doesn't mean that you have to be qualified to go out and preach the gospel. That's not what it's saying. It doesn't mean that you have to go through a whole bunch of schooling to go out and preach the gospel. All of us are called to preach the gospel. But what it's saying is, is that we don't need anything else instructing us in ways of the gospel other than what is given to us from heaven, which is God's word. So the description of that little book here in Revelation is very important because realize the angel standing on the earth, his foot is in the sea, his foot is on the land, declaring everything in creation is his. And he's handing, he's got a book in his hand that's wide open. And he tells John to take that book, eat it, and to digest this book into his body. That is what Christ is called. What did he say to us? What is our mission? What was our purpose when he left this earth? What did he tell us to do? Go and make disciples, right? How do you make a disciple? How did Christ make his disciples? Instructing them? Living it out? Giving them the word of God was that because he was the word of God, right? That's what this is describing. And it's very important that we understand this in chapter 10 because what's getting ready to happen, we're going to see now the results of this seventh trumpet. And this is the part that the, the Bible wants us to understand. This is why we need to know this stuff. Because if we know it, then when I talk to somebody, we can fully articulate to them what the end outcome is for those who do turn from Christ or who don't have Christ. Now, we also understand in Revelation, they've made it clear that there are those who never will turn to Christ. The book of Revelation makes that very clear. But still, that says we're called to no matter what to go out and give the gospel to everyone from the lowest to the highest, which means we should not be afraid to preach to kings and we should not be afraid to preach to our neighbor. That's what it talks about. But I want to go back now to chapter 3 in Ezekiel. Now that we went through this chapter, go back to Ezekiel real quick. There's a little more depth in Ezekiel about some things. Pharisees misinterpreted this now that we've read Revelations. Remember, they didn't have Revelation, right? So you'll see how they misinterpreted this. Verse 3, in these, chapter 3 in Ezekiel says this, Moreover, he said to me, Son of man, eat, eat what you find, eat this scroll, and go and speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth, and he caused me to eat the scroll. And he said to me, Son of man, fill your belly, and fill your stomach with this scroll that I give you. So I ate it, and it was in my mouth like honey in sweetness. Then he said to me, Son of man, go to the house of Israel and speak with my words to them. For you are not sent to a people of unfamiliar speech and of a hard language, but to the house of Israel. Not to many people of unfamiliar speech and of hard language, whose words you cannot understand. Surely have I sent you to them, but, the, but they would have listened, they says they would have listened to you. The house of Israel will not listen to you. So what it's saying before I go any further is, I could have sent you to somebody who was a different language, who was of a different race, who was of a different anything, and they would listen to you. But Israel is not going to listen to you. So I want you to remember what we just read in chapter 10. We're called to go out, all right? So we're getting the idea here that... Let's, let's keep reading so you'll see what I mean. But the house of Israel will not listen to you because they will not listen to me. For all the house of Israel are imprudent and hard-hearted. 
Behold, I have made your face strong against their faces, and your forehead strong against their foreheads. Like adamant stone, harder than flint, I have made your forehead. Do not be afraid of them, nor be dismayed at their looks, though they are a rebellious house. Moreover, he said to me, Son of man, receive into your heart all my words that I speak to you, and hear with your ears, and go get the captives to the children of your people, and speak to them, and tell them, Thus says the Lord God, whether they hear or whether they refuse. Then the Spirit lifted me up, and I heard behind me a great thunderous voice. Blessed is the glory of the Lord from his place. I also heard the noise of the wings of the living creatures that touched one another. As we're going through this, you see how the prophecy shifted. We went from talking about the house of Israel, and his prophecy has shifted now to the throne room. And it says, And I heard the noise of the wings of the living creatures that touched one another, and the noise of the wheels beside them, and a great thunderous noise. So the Spirit lifted me up and took me away, and I went into bitterness in the heat of my spirit. But the hand of the Lord was strong upon me. Then I came to the captives of Tel Aviv, who dwelt by the river Shabar, and I sat where they sat and remained there as astonished among the seven days. I'm going to stop here for a minute. He's given, he's told to eat what the Lord has told him. He says it's going to be, it was sweet to him when he ate it. He is told to go to his people and say what the Lord has told him to say. And he's told already that there, a lot of them aren't going to listen to you because they've hardened their hearts. Now as we go through the rest of this chapter in 3, it talks about, God starts describing a wrath coming to those who do not are not with the Lord. And he goes to describe a lot of that wrath. Um, it says here, Now it came to pass at the end of seven days. It's kind of interesting, seven days here. But it's referring to also what's being spoken of in Revelation of the seven thunders. The, that the Lord caused me to say, Son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. Therefore hear a word from my mouth and give them a warning. When I say to the wicked, you shall surely die. And you will have no warning, nor speak to warn the wicked from his wicked way to save his life. That same wicked man shall die in his iniquities, but his blood I will require at your hand. Yet if you warn the wicked, and he does not turn from his wickedness, nor from his wicked way, he shall die in his iniquity, but you have delivered your soul. And then it keeps going on. It's describing, there's two parts of the prophecy here. One, yes, is speaking of going to Israel, because at this time Israel was a very rebellious nation. They had turned from God, and they were doing what Israel did best, which was not serve God. But it's also a prophecy, it's one of those peaked prophecies, that's also speaking at the end of days, which John just revealed to us, that what he told Ezekiel to do in that prophecy is what he was prophesying we must do now, because when that seventh thunder, or that seventh trumpet goes, it's over. It's the end. There's no, there is no more prophesying. That's why in the next couple chapters we're going to see the witnesses. We're going to see all of this before the seventh trumpet. We're going to see the witnesses, the two witnesses that come to earth, and what are they doing? They're prophesying. They're going out. They're giving the word of God. They're trying to save people. So then we're going to see the story of the, the woman and the dragon. And there's a twofold meaning in that also. But all of this we're going to see before we go to the seventh trumpet. Just like with the seventh seal. Before this seven, seven is the end. That's what I want you guys to understand. When that seventh trumpet blows, that's also the seventh seal. That's also the seventh bowl. That is the end. So what it's trying to reveal to us by Ezekiel, tying to chapter 10, is that from the beginning of time, God has warned his people that this day was coming. How many people have actually listened to it? Remember that movie we watched, that one we just saw? It spoke a lot about that, right? And we talked about this the other night with somebody. I said, we say we believe this, but do you? Have you ever asked yourself that question? We say we believe Christ is coming back, but do you? See, Paul, John, all of them, when they said that they believed Christ was coming, that belief meant that Christ, they believed that Christ was coming in the next 10 minutes. 
That's how they lived their life. Because to them, they understood that he is coming. We today, because it's been such a long period, we've become very complacent. We're very complacent. That's the point of Revelation, is to wake us out of that complacency, because that complacency is going to get us to the seventh trumpet before we know it. And then all of those people that we should have given the message to, now I'm not saying this also, I will say this, if you, if you didn't give them the message, God didn't sit up there going, well no, how am I going to tell them? He's already got 20 other plans of how it's going to happen. But, you didn't do what was called. That's why we need to know Revelation. That's the whole point of chapter 10. There's no real deep theology in chapter 10. It's, it's a simple, straightforward message that is, I told you to take my word, I told you to eat it, consume it in your body, it should have a twofold effect on you. It should make you excited that this is your victory, but it should also make you sick that what's going to happen to those who are not in, with Christ. And then you should take that feeling, that sickness, and that knowledge, and you should go give it to everyone so they, are, so they can make an educated decision. How many times have we used that in our lives? We'll research a car up and down so we can make an educated decision, right? But we won't do that about our life so we can make an educated decision. You ever thought of that? And that's what this book is for. It's to wake us up. It's to say, you, you will do more research on buying a house than you will research on your, the rest of your life, on your eternity. See, we are complacent people. We're a complacent nation. That's, that's what happened to the Pharisees. Complacency. They knew, he, they knew the prophecies, right? And they said they were always waiting for him to return. And they said they were ready for him to return. Yet when he returned, they didn't even know he was there. Same thing with us. Do you think God didn't give the, prophet, the, the Old Testament, they didn't, they didn't, the Pharisees, did they have enough information to know Christ was coming? Matter of fact, I showed us, and we will look at this again. They actually knew by prophecy the exact date that Christ was going to be born. And they knew the exact date that he was going to be crucified. They knew that. And they overlooked it. Now, everybody's like, well, we don't know the day or the hour. And I want to talk about that tonight, too, on this before we close. We don't know the day or the hour. If anybody ever tells you that Christ is coming on December 31st at 4.45 p.m., you know it's false. But also, we use that line as an excuse not to be educated. When it says the day of the hour, how many know what the, we saw the movie, how many know what the Feast of Trumpets actually is in Jewish tradition? I know you do. All right, well, I will tell you this. The Feast of Trumpets is declared by the, by the, by the, the coming of the new moon. All right? And even today, before I describe it, I want to say this. With all of the advancements we have in our astral, whatever they do, the meteorology, they can guess the new moon. They can put it on your calendar that it's a new moon. But they don't know when the new moon appears. They can't see it. In, for the Feast of Trumpets, two witnesses would have to be outside. And they would be watching constantly the sky. Waiting. Waiting for the minute that that new moon appeared. And when it appeared, those two would run and tell them and they would blow the trumpets because the new moon had arrived. See, with the Feast of Trumpets, they knew the season, but they didn't know the day or the hour when the moon would appear. So when Christ referred to us, when he said, you don't, I, I don't, we don't know the day or the hour, he was literally referring to the Feast of Trumpets. What he was saying is, you know all the seasons you know all the signs. You know when it's nigh to us. You just don't know the hour. In other words, he was referring to the Feast of Trumpets, telling us we need to be watching because it's going to appear like that. And when it does, we have to be ready. See, they were ready in the Jewish tradition for that Feast of Trumpets. They were all set up. But they couldn't have it because they didn't know the day or the hour when, the, when that moon would appear. But when it did appear... Somebody was watching. Imagine if nobody was watching for that. They would never be able to have the Feast of Trumpets, right? 
because it would appear they'd miss it. They couldn't just go outside and be like, oh, it's there now because it's already passed. It's not the new moon anymore. That's what he was referring to. So don't take that hour, we don't know the hour or the day, don't take that as an excuse to not be educated in Revelation, to not be educated on the signs of the seasons. Um, we talked about that also, there's seven, it's kind of interesting, there's seven feasts in the Jewish tradition. Seven. God really likes that seven number, doesn't he? Four of them are the spring feasts. Those four refer to the first coming of Christ. Everything that they represent has to do with the first coming of Christ. The last three are the fall feasts, and they refer to the second coming of Christ. Everything in the feast, and we'll go through them when we get to the time. But chapter 10, the whole point of chapter 10 is to tell us we need to take the word, we need to take what's written to us in this, in Revelation, we need to eat it, we need to consume it in our lives, we need to digest it, and then we need to give it to people. That's why we need to know. Because if we don't know, how can we tell someone? I, there's so much, in, as we go into the next chapter, chapter 11, that we have to understand 10, because if we don't, 11 is just going to be like a story to us. When we read about the two witnesses, we're going to be like, well, they're going to do it. Why do I got to do it? The two witnesses are here. They're going to do it. And it's just going to become, how many, I'll ask this question. And be honest with yourself. Do you read Revelation and think, well, this is a pretty good story? Or do you read Revelation and think, wow, this is what's going to happen? That's the difference. You know, it's, it's, this is not a bestseller. It's not something on the shelf. It's not something that we just read and go, man, it's a great read. I'll read it again later when, you know, when I want something to do. It's, we have to understand what it's telling us is this is real. This is true. This is going to happen. And we were just talking about it again today with some people. Do you, I mean, how many think we are in, we're, we're in these seasons? I agree. We are, we are seeing the signs telling us, hey, we need to be watching for, the, for this beast of trumpets. Because it's, we're in that time. We are seeing on a small scale. What Revelation has told us is going to happen. And while it's bittersweet to us, because we do get upset about it today, do we not? What we see going on upsets us, right? The perversion in the world, the wars in the world, the economy in the world, the hatred of the church in the world, all of this stuff that's going on right now makes us sick to our stomach, right? And we don't know sometimes, as a Christian, why does it make me sick to my stomach? Because it's a twofold effect on us. One, we know that's coming, our victory is coming, but we also know the wrath is coming. And I think sometimes it makes us sick to our stomach because we honestly assess our own selves. Am I in the victory or am I in the wrath? You ever thought about that too? You ever assessed yourself? I'm not talking about salvation. We'll get into that later. But always assess yourself. That's what this book's for. Uh, Paul told us over and over to remind ourselves over and over what it says in here. We need to assess ourselves because it needs to be real to us. Revelation is so real to me, and every day I watch the news, and I'm just going to talk personally. Every day I watch the news, and I kind of get excited, but then I also kind of get worried or scared. Not because for me, but for everybody I know that I know aren't in Christ. Exactly. Yeah. That's what happens yeah. to me. I watch the news, and people are like, man, I'm so scared. I'm like, I'm not scared because of what's going on. I'm scared because I know what's going on. You know what I mean? Right. And that's, that's that twofold effect that chapter 10 is talking about. It should be sweet and bitter to us. But it should be real to us, like it said in the beginning when it says it's a book. It should be real to us. It shouldn't be a story. And I think Hollywood has helped us make it a story. There's a lot of books. I've got a whole stack in the back on the, the movie that was out. I'm not saying that these are bad things, but we have allowed it to become not real. Like a best-selling book on a shelf. That's what it is like to a lot of people. And that's, that's the fault of the church, too, because the church hasn't taught. Or when they have taught it, or when they have taught Revelation, they've done one of two things. They've either taught it as fire and brimstone and screaming death upon everybody, or they went to the other side and they've spiritualized it so far that's, 
that you sit there and you're like, I can't understand this. That's what I believe. Chapter 10 tells us it's an open book for the common people and the kings, which means it's an open, easy to read. It's for everyone. Now, when I say everyone, I mean those in Christ, because those who are not in Christ can't read anything out of here, and it doesn't make any sense to them whatsoever, because it's foolishness to them. But I guess what I wanted you to get out of tonight in chapter 10 was to understand that we, as Christians, need to view this as not a story. And I've done, I'm, I'm guilty of it myself. I've done it. How many of us have read, I'll give us an example of this, how many of us have read The Birth of Christ so much, we're like, that's cool. Right? Right? We're like, that's a good story, right? We read it up. Every Christmas we're talking about the birth of Christ, right? I, we have complacent and taken that story and taken the significance out of it because to us it's a story, right? We talk about the birth of Christ every Christmas. Every Christmas we talk about the birth of Christ, right? But do we, under, do we hold the importance the birth of Christ, or do we just do it because it's what we need to do? I think we lose our awe. Yes, that's it. Or we lose our awe. We lose our, a lot of us get in Revelation, we lose that awe too, because we're like, oh, I've got to read Revelation. And that's because the way it's been presented to everybody. I've got to read it. I'm not reading that book. I can't understand that book. It scares me. I can't understand the words. It's, he's talking about, it's a simple written book. We don't have to spiritualize it. It'll do it itself. The Holy Spirit will make it say what it needs to say. But we need to I don't want to keep harping on it, but we, we, it's got to be real to us. It can't be a story. And it's what, you know, so many of us think, I'm guilty, I've done it. Like I talk about the birth of Christ, I've done it. I've, I've preached so many times on the birth of Christ that, you know, I'll even admit this, I found myself going, I don't have to write another sermon, I don't have to write this, I don't have to research it. I don't have to do any more study on this. You know, I've talked <laughs> the birth of Christ a hundred times. But that's wrong of me. I shouldn't be that way. I should be, you know what? I need to be back into that, researching and studying that, just like I do every topic I teach. You just go back to the old, well, I've done this before, that I've taken the, I'll use the word you used, I've taken the awe out of it and made it just a story. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Aren't these words Jesus in print? Yes, it's the living word. That's what, yes, and that's what I meant earlier when it calls it a book. It's not, when it's talking about that book, it's, it's telling us that the words in this book are not just the revelation. It is revelation. Yeah. It's, it's, it's truth. Christ spoke this. We call it the book of Revelation. The actual title of it is the revelation of Jesus Christ is the actual Greek title of this book, which means Christ revealed. So what it's doing is revealing to us what has been a mystery to us. Now, on chapter 10, before we go anywhere, anybody, anybody have specific questions or anything from previously that they saw and they never got to ask? Because the next chapter is going to talk about the witnesses. And then we're, those are, that's a pretty good one because that gets into some good stuff. Have anybody got any questions? Somebody has to have a question about something. You have a comment? Um, you were describing the little book and you were talking about it being open. Yeah. And he said, here, take it. Yeah. And it's like the Bible is open test. All the answers are there that we need. Yeah. Right there, it's, I just felt like you know, the Lord's like handing us. There's, look for it. It's in there. I I like that. It's like an open book test. I like that. I, I think, think for me, like I thought, the whole time you were teaching, I was thinking about when my mom and I went to the ark. I mean, you just know that you know that you know when God said He created the ark. That's the way it is. It didn't. I didn't need proof. But when we hit the ark and were shown. How, what it meant by, like, there wasn't every kind of dog right. we know today type thing. So that made it more substantial when you share it. And I find this the same, like, I know that I have friends and family going to hell. But it's almost like you become so complacent. Yes. You're going to hell. But this makes it, like, so real and so how hard Christ is willing to work. Yes. To keep them from going there. Like, it, I don't know, it makes it more serious. Does that make sense? It, I, I understand what you mean by that. Yeah, it makes yeah. it more serious. It should make it, we should awaken us. Because, like you're talking about, when we talked in men's group when we were smaller, 
This whole book, if you guys were going through it, God did not have to... First off, he didn't have to do any of this, right? He didn't have to do a tribulation period. He didn't have to do all of this stuff. But he did it because it was necessary to save people. And that whole book, he's, he's holding off that seventh trumpet. And that's because, you know, as you read in the New Testament, it says, until the time of the Gentiles have fully come in. Which means until he's holding it off because God knows the exact last person who's going to come to him. And I always say this, that last person, when the Gentiles are full, that's going to bring in all of this. There's two comings of Christ, like I talked about. The rapture of the church, Christ doesn't physically come to the earth at that time. Okay? That's when the church is raptured. The physical second coming is when he places his foot on the mountain, and he's here. Now, we're going to go, I'm not going to talk about that, because we're going to get into a lot of that. That's when you're going to get some questions. You guys are going to... People ask questions like, well, can people still get saved at that point? I've even had questions of people giving birth during this time or children being born. And I found it interesting that these are questions that people want to ask. And you know what? It's questions they need to know the answers to. But the difference between the two is when it says the fullness of the Gentiles. Have you ever heard of saying we are ushering in the kingdom? Right. You know, we need to bring the kingdom of God to earth. What do you think we should be doing to, to do that? I've seen out there that we need to take over the government, the seven pillars of the spell. Oh, I think it's as simple as taking this a little more. Like, if, if God's willing to go through all of this to give every last person a chance, then we should be, when we step out, be willing to go, well, I don't want to talk to that guy at the gas pump. He smells. You know, or I'm too shy to talk to that person. I think we need to take it as serious. So we need to usher in the kingdom, which means invite in, open the door for those that have yet to step in. That's a good way to put it, because our victory comes, our victory comes when the last person comes to Christ. So, yeah, if I'm chickening out, I'm slowing it down. Type I, of thing. If you, that's a good way to put it. Let's put it that way. Not that we, not physically we no, are. No, But let's put it that way. If we're not giving the message out, right, and we want to know why God hasn't returned. Well, we can turn around and blame it on ourselves. Yeah. Because Scripture says that our victory comes when the last person comes to Christ. And it could be her or her or him. We never know who that person is. Now, there are other people, the tribulation saints, we'll call them, who come to Christ during the period of tribulation, which we will be the ones, I like to say, we're sitting up in the arena watching yeah, this. Yeah, we won't be here. We won't be here for that. Um, but if we want to... Use the, I'll use the coin phrase that's out there. If we want to usher in the kingdom, you know, there ain't these seven pillars we got to take over and all this stuff. We need to give the gospel. That's what we need to be doing. Be the usher. That's what chapter 10 is all about. It's a reminder of our calling is what chapter 10 is. When Christ left this earth, he gave us one simple calling. He didn't say go out and do all this stuff. He said go out and make disciples. This is a reminder of that calling. Go out, give what I have given you to everyone. That's what we're called to do. And I love that in the middle of the tribulational period, I wish I had my map. It's not big enough. I'd love to put that up here. I'm going to have to draw it so I can put it up here. But in this little thing that I have, I really need it right now. But uh, I'm going to draw it so I can put it up here. But uh, it's, it's, it's in Kimmy's room. It's that board I have that had the arcs on and stuff. Well, right here in chapter 10, let me give you a visual of where we're at. Okay. The church has been raptured. We are in the tribulation. We have, at this point, we are past that three and a half year mark. But we're not quite to the end of the tribulation period. So... All of this stuff that we're going to see happening in chapter 11 is during that ending, or let's say the final, let's call it the final curtain. During the final call at the end of tribulation, these two witnesses are going to appear. And they're going to do what we're told to do. But remember, at this point, the church is in heaven, right? So during this period, I'm sure there's nobody running around witnessing for Christ. Because we've already read what happens during this time. If you come to Christ during this period of tribulation, it's 
I love to say it's an honest coming to Christ because you know the outcome of it. Right. You know, you're going to become one of the one of the tribulation saints. So we're at the end. But as we were talking about dates, and that's why I came aboard, you know what I'm talking about, Donnie. You're, you're I need that board because it is, I'm going to put it, I'm going to draw it and put it up here and blow it up on the screen because the visualization that I can give you at this point is it will blow your mind. We're going to talk about you know, the dates. I just want to put it to us this way. Isn't it interesting that Scripture has given us all that we even know the dates after Christ comes back? We know the dates. We know the, the millennial reign. We know everything. We know the dates before He came. We know the dates down to the exact minute that He was born, down to the exact minute that He was crucified. We know how long His ministry was going to be when He was here. Then we know, we know, we know when He was going to heaven. Then we don't know His second return. But then we know the date of the millennial reign. We know all these other dates. Why do we? Why was we not given this date? But yet we have gone complacent. See, if we would know, if if God had prophesied to us just like He did about the Savior's first coming, and said in prophecy that on this time and this date Christ is going to return to take over the earth, how would we live our lives? Do you think we'd be out there winning souls for Christ? No. We would be hanging out, doing whatever we wanted to do, and then we'd be like, uh-oh, tomorrow at 8 o'clock. Yeah. Got to get myself together here. He's coming, right? So I found that interesting. But uh, I'm going to... Huh? Yeah. Yeah. But... So I definitely got to get that board up there. It bothers me not having it. I'm going to have to draw this because I really need a few guys. But on that note, we're going to end chapter 10. Uh... Next week, chapter 11. Chapter 11 gets pretty deep. I think the notes on that one are, took us a couple sessions in chapter 11. So we'll probably be in 11 maybe two times for the week to get through that. Because there's a lot of stuff. There's, there's a lot of debunking I have to do in chapter 11. Because there's a lot of stuff that's been taught about the two witnesses that definitely didn't come out of Scripture. I don't know where it came from. But on a, pre, on a side note of that, who, do we have any ideas other than the men who were in this? Do we... Do we have an idea of who those two witnesses are? Anybody ever been taught that? Anybody ever read or research that? That's that's what that's all that's the biggest consensus that those two witnesses are Moses and Elijah. And I'm going to show you in the scripture, in their definitions and in their descriptions of these witnesses, that we are shown who they are. I always wonder because every every teaching I've heard on it, it's like that doesn't sound it didn't seem right. So now, you, now you're under the magnifying glass. Yes. So I'm going to show you in Scripture exactly. It does give us the descriptions just like everything else to tell us who they are. Huh. And even it's significant in their death and it's significant in after they die how the world reacts. So there's so much in 11 that we will be into. We'll be debunking a lot of stuff. But it's a beautiful chapter. It's got a lot of good stuff in it. Um, on that note again, I'll close. I know there's probably not a lot of questions on 10, but anything else? Because 10's kind of a, I call it a filler chapter. It's kind of in the middle, but it's important. It's a reminder. Wake up. It's real. And, it's, and ladies and gentlemen, it's coming. It's coming quicker than we think. We are definitely in, as I like to call it, the birth pains. As the coming convergence says, you know, it's like giving birth. It gets stronger and stronger and stronger until it's time. We're definitely in that. We're definitely in that. Right? Yeah. They tried, tried assassinating him, but it didn't work. They had to send him to the island. They scared him, the king, and put him out there. It's amazing how... And can you... Let's just talk about that before we close. Could you imagine being John? No. You have no idea. You're the only left living apostle. Right? right? And you feel like now you've been exiled. And first off, let me get the image out of your head that John was alone on the Isle of Patmos. He was not. That is where they sent the worst of the worst. And this island was only about a mile wide and maybe three miles long. You could literally almost see each side of that island. But we've seen Hollywood show us John sitting in a cave all by himself with no way around. He was not alone. He did live separated, but he wasn't alone. So what I'm getting at is imagine being an apostle 
who have done great things for God, and now you feel like you're in a position where you have no use for God. I mean, God has no, you can't do anything for Him anymore. I'm on an island. I'm separated from the world. I, 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 I've done all these great things and written all these great letters. And then can you imagine sitting there thinking, as happens always in Scripture, like that He was hiding under a broom tree. Let me die. You know. And then Christ appears to him. Remember, this is not, this appearing of Christ to him is not like a dream. This is literally Christ appearing to him. In like full, like he appeared to him the first time. That's literally, it's like waking up and your buddy Christ standing right beside you. And he's like, guess what, John? Your mission isn't over yet. That's another lesson for us too, because I think sometimes we get in that situation where we feel stagnant. Like, like we're on an island by ourselves and I have no, I just have no purpose anymore. You know, no matter where we're at, you're there for a reason. The question is, are we focusing on God or are we focusing on ourselves? As Paul would say to us, you know, it's not about pleasing ourselves. I love that. That, that inspires me when I think about Jonah because we read about it and we don't really think about that because we didn't live during that time. But I mean, he was a great apostle. And now he's always on an island where he probably feels isolated, probably feels like he can't do anything else for God. I can write some letters. You know, and then, then in his, his worst probably feeling, God appears to him and says, guess what? Not only do I have a use for you, but the use that you're going to do is going to affect the entire world all the way to the end. That's a calling, and that's what Tender reminds us.